This is our eighth episode, and we are continuing with the James Bond movie franchise. We are re-watching the movies in order, and then rating and ranking each movie. So this is episode eight, Live and Let Die. So in this movie, James Bond is sent to New York City to investigate the mysterious deaths of several British agents. He senses there's a drugs link between the notorious Mr. Big and Dr. Kananga, who's an owner of a small Caribbean island. So Jay, what do you remember about the film before we re-watched it recently? Yeah, so I think this is obviously Moore's first Bond movie. So I remember that it was, you know, Roger Moore appearing in Bond for the first time. I remembered Solitaire, um, you know, lovely Bond girl. I remember that she was in it. And I re- I recall that there was quite a, a big boat chase as well. Um, but other than that, I couldn't really remember um, much about the film. How about you, Andy? So I remember quite a bit from this. Um, I remember the, the kind of the funeral slash parade scenes in, in New Orleans at the, at the beginning. I remember there was a lot of voodoo elements throughout the film. Um, I remember the claw hand, the kind of metallic claw hand on, uh, on Teehee. Um, the, one of the villains, Baron Samadhi, uh, particularly the, the scene where he rises from the grave. That was a really cool in, intro. I remember the, the scene with the crocodiles where he kind of uses them as stepping stones. And I remember Sergeant J.W. Pepper. I'm not going to do the proper accent, but he's a bit of a hillbilly cop that we see in a couple of films, I believe. Um, and also there's a there's a quite famous scene with Bond and Solitaire involving sharks and then being tied up and potentially fed to them, which I thought was pretty cool. So kind of scene-specific rather than story-specific, but I certainly re- there's quite a few memorable scenes in this film that that I remembered beforehand. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like, you know, in terms of the crocodile stepping stones. I don't know if it's the same with you, but when, I, when I'm going through re-watching these, there's certain things that I remember, but I can't quite place which film they're in. So, you know, the, the crocodile scene is a famous scene, but I didn't realise it was in this movie. Um, and same with um, J.W. Pepper. Um, I, I recall that he appears in two Roger Moore films, but I couldn't recall it was this one. So, you know, there's so many memorable scenes. Sometimes I, I just get a bit confused about which Bond film um, they actually appear. And I'm good at remembering that, oh, yeah, this is like a Roger Moore um, movie, but I can never quite place sometimes which movie it appears in. Yeah, I agree. I have the same same kind of thing. I think that for this film particularly, I have more vivid memories than some of the later ones, but but you're right, I do the same thing. I did the same for, for some of the Connery ones as well. Were, I knew that there were certain scenes that were were from a Connery film, but I couldn't remember exactly what it was. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned that. I was actually just going off on a bit of a tangent. My my dad this morning spoke to me and I, I told him, you know, rewatch this recently. And he went, oh, is that the one with the car jump? It's like, no, that's not. <laughs> so he, he had the same the same kind of memories. Like, oh, I know that was a Roger Moore one, but... Um, he he has the same kind of memory where he he knows he knows the elements of Connery and the elements of Moore, but not necessarily which film is which. Yeah, and I, I know we're going to carry on um, in a minute, but I think as a kid, I think Roger Moore was the first Bond I saw on TV. I think he's the one that, as when I think of my childhood, is the one that is 
I associate more, even though he was 70s and 80s. Obviously, I was born in the early 80s. He's the one, I think, in terms of the first Bond movie. I can't remember exactly which Bond movie I watched first, but I think he must have been the first Bond. Yeah, I'm, I'm still more Connery. I remember Connery and I remember more, but uh, Lazenby and Dalton, not so much. Mm. It's to be said, but um, in, in my head... Before, before I kind of got into them properly and, you know, watched them all in order when I was a teenager, um, I didn't really know much about Lazenby or Dalton. Um, yeah. It was just, they were kind of the two kingpins. So let's, let's continue on with our uh, information gathering. And what we've got is a number of villains in, in this film. We've got Dr. Kananga, Mr. Big. Uh, we've got Teehee Johnson and we've got Baron Samadhi. Uh, number of Bond girls in this, Solitaire, Rosie Carver, and Miss Caruso. And the theme song was by Paul McCartney and Wings, uh, and the title Live and Let Die, as per the film. Yeah, thanks, Andy. So, yeah, continuing on the, the bits that we're collecting every movie, we've got the opening credits. And uh, in terms of the notes, so got Dan, very good music, um, very upbeat and fast-paced, Andy, compared to the, the previous entries. Um, the intro was very colourful as well, and... I know they do this with each of the films and obviously this has voodoo elements, but the, the move, you know, the opening credits have that influence of voodoo ceremonies um, and also black models appearing. And I don't know this is the first time they've had black models or not in the intro. I can't quite remember. And then you've just got your usual female silhouettes and models. Um, so carrying on, we've got, body count so james bond kills only we've got eight in this movie and we can see where that drops in our rankings later on and in terms of gadgets we've got the rolex watch so this and this is a, a combination one so you've got the spinning blade and the magnetic aspect of the watch as well he more has got a bug detector uh, also a transmitter as well and what i've got down Andy here is a gas slash air pellet so uh, I don't know whether you class it as a gas or air, so I've, I've classed it as both for that particular gadget. I'll, I'll go with gas slash air because I'm not sure how you'd name that either. <laughs> so for, for the purpose of this podcast, it is gas slash air, uh, which is very easy to say. So moving on to some other facts and figures, the introduction of Bond, James Bond. Um, this was actually quite a, a while before we saw this in the film. It was 23 minutes and 10 seconds, which I believe is the, the longest it's taken so far when we have seen it. And we talked last week about when Connery came back to do Diamonds Are Forever, and he made the introduction very, very early on in the film, almost as if to remind uh, the viewers that Bond is back and he is Bond. And they went with the other way with this in terms of Roger Moore, and that kind of surprised me, especially with this being his first outing as Bond. I thought they might get that in a little bit earlier just to cement the fact, but but yeah, over over 23 minutes, which was a little bit surprising. I had exactly the same thought, Andy, where I don't know how you do this, but I've got like a little um, pad and I, I pre-write certain things down that we're monitoring. And then, you know, me and the missus basically, you know, quickly pause it. And it was just going on. I thought maybe he doesn't say it because I thought, you know, Jules Lazenby said it quite early. Like you said, Diamonds are forever. Um, Connery says it's um, nearly straight away. So, yeah, I, I was expecting Roger Moore to say it a lot earlier than the 23 minutes that you've just mentioned. Also, some of the other staples of the Bond franchise, Martini, no, no Martinis for, for Roger Moore in this film. 
and there's no hats involved, either throwing or wearing. And I believe this is the first time that he's not wore a hat at any point in the film. So, Jay, what was your favourite scene from this film? Yeah, I put down Crocodile Farm, Andy. I like the boat chase. I thought that was good. But for me, the, the Crocodile Farm, I thought was really good. Um, it's it's quite a short scene, actually, when you think about it. You know, he, he gets there with um, Tee Johnson and the other goons. He's taken on a little bridge um, that's wheeled out. Um, and then he's there. And then you've got your, your mix of alligator and crocodiles. Um, in Throughout this movie, Roger Moore is very smooth um, and calm. And I think this is the only time that you see him a bit flustered, really. So I, I did enjoy that. And obviously, uh, we're going to touch on it later on. But, you know, the stunt where he jumps over the crocodiles, um, I thought, you know, I thought was really enjoyable. And we've got some bit, you know, some more information about that later on. But how about you? So I went for the boat chase. Uh, the crocodile farm scene is, is very, very good. There's a number of really good scenes in this. But for me, the boat chase just edged it. Um, it's a little bit long when we think about um, other chases of cars or other vehicles in previous films. But um, this just, it seemed to work and the, it, the different elements of it, I thought, um, kind of bled together very, very well. Uh, particularly liked uh, the part where they crashed the wedding. That was, that gave me a little chuckle. Um, but yeah, the, the whole boat chase thing was kind of the, the thing I enjoyed the most. So how many times did you reach for your phone? I only reached for my phone once and it was something to do with Roger Moore. Um, something happened in the movie, I can't remember what, and I ended up Googling it. Um, but apart from that, you know, I enjoyed the film, so I, it did keep my attention. So, yeah, just the once. Disappointing, but it was, it was once and it had to be truthful. Um, how about you, mate? I, I didn't at all. Um, I think this will be reflected in the rating in a moment, but I was really into this. It was a very, very enjoyable film and just kind of um, sat back and watched it. I mean, I, I took my usual notes but i found myself at times thinking oh, i've not taken notes for ages because i was just so i was engrossed it kind of really stuck me in so uh didn't need to need the phone for a good two hours at least that's good going so all important rating out of 10 jay what did you go with yeah so this you know i think this surprised you andy um so i've given um live and let die six out of ten so we, we're obviously going to go, go into more in-depth um, analysis later on when we do our rankings. But yeah, the, the rating I gave um, was 6 out of 10. Enjoyable film, but you know we can talk about the rankings a bit later on. Um, how about you? So this is where our synergy is broken. Um, and I went, for, uh, I went for 8 out of 10. Really, really enjoyed this. Um, and I was surprised that we were so different because, I mean, you've generally been... A little bit more generous with your marks than I have over the past seven films, uh, but this for me was uh, was a fantastic uh, opening film for more. Um, so straight away eight out of ten. That's what we think. Um, how does your better half think? Yeah. So um, the missus she enjoyed this um, this one. She said it was better than the recent films. She also liked Roger Moore. So she, she didn't think he was, um, as you know, sexist as Connery, um, as cold as Connery. So she really liked the, the stylish. And what she said was, um, 
that Bond in this movie and, you know, going on probably for the other um, Roger Moore films, that Bond came across as more of a, a British gentleman than a spy. So I think when you think about Connery, I think you think he's more of a, um, a killer, whereas Bond, he, um, as, you know, Moore's version of um, Bond um, is more like a lover. He's obviously, you know, a gentleman and a spy. But, you know, that that was her view. And like I said, um, she said, you know, it was very stylish. And, you know, when I was making notes on this, I just kept wearing, you know, writing out that, you know, what, what Roger Moore was wearing was really stylish. Um, and he just looked smooth and came across. And that was um, the missus opinion as well. She, she enjoyed the film. She, she, you know, the last few films she hasn't really enjoyed. Um, and I think, I can't remember, I think it was the last one I said where she was like nodding off. But this one, um, she really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, um, I bet you the wife's still not partaking. She's she's still absent um, for these movies. I think I've not given up hope, but it's it's looking bleak at the minute. So I'm going solo for the foreseeable future. That's fair enough. You've got me to keep you company, Andy. Yeah, my uh, my podcast wife, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> Few other facts and figures about the film so the runtime is two hours one minute again we're in the same sort of ballpark as most of the others um we'll move later on to the kind of where that ranks but it feels like it's it's about in the middle about what would expect uh this was released in 1973 a couple of years after diamonds are forever and guy hamilton is back at the helm directing his third bond film having previously directed goldfinger and diamonds are forever yeah, and you know, talking about Guy Hamilton, um, the I think Goldfinger is obviously a very strong film that we've we've spoken about. Diamonds Are Forever. It was a box box office success, but you know, both of us didn't really think much of it. So his comeback for this one, obviously, you've rated it highly. Whereas I've, you know, I've said it's probably consistent, you know, with and Diamonds Are Forever in our ranking. So yeah, it's interesting. That it's come it's come back for a third time. So, yeah, so now we're going to just talk about um, just some general points before we kind of get into um, scene by scene. So, Andy, you know, I like to talk about the box office stats as part of this podcast. All about the money. All about the money. (laughs) Jerry Maguire, uh, show me the money. So, yeah, box office stats, Andy. So I thought this was surprising. So the budget for this was $7 million. So that budget is actually less than Diamonds Are Forever on the Magic Secret Service, you only live twice. And Thunderball, and we were talking about it last week, weren't we, that, you you know, the, the, the budget you would imagine is going up each year because of, like, inflation, et cetera. But, you know, this is actually lower than the, the previous four films, um, which I found really surprising. Um, I don't know when you, you know, when you're looking at this, whether you were surprised about that, surprised about that as well. Um, but yeah, um, it's, so in terms of box office returns, Andy, $162 million worldwide box office. So this was actually a most successful box office return for any of the eight movies so far. So um, it kind of reinforces how you've done a high ranking as well. And I suppose, I wonder if there's any correlation um, when there's a new bond in terms of box office returns, whether it kind of goes up every time there's a new bond or not. Might be something worth tracking. You know, when someone's coming on and someone new and they think, oh, you know, go and see what he's like. And obviously Roger Moore, um, he was a successful TV star before this anyway. 
wasn't he? So he's probably got a lot of fans from his, you know, TV work. So next point, um, Andy, was this is the first Bond movie to feature a black lover. So Rosie Carver. So I thought that was interesting. And obviously um, there's there's quite a lot of, um, you know, in terms of the settings and everything, there's, you know, quite a few black actors in this film. Um, which I think is probably due to the time it was released, you know, in the 70s, um, the movement at that point. Um, And kind of following on from that point, really, is in the original movie script, Solitaire um, was actually um, supposed to be black. She was written as a black character, but United Artists, who's, you know, the film studio, wouldn't actually sanction this. Um, So that's why they ended up, obviously um, giving the role to a white actress. And just before you kind of take over, Andy, the um, the interracial relationship between, you know, uh, Rosie and Bond caused issues, you know, across certain countries across the world, especially in places like South Africa. So I think it was quite a brave move, you know, by the director, and the, the studio and the, the screenwriter. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, in some ways we take those kind of things for granted these days. I mean, obviously we're, we're not in a world of racial equality yet, but you would hope that things are heading in the right direction. Um, so for this to be um, kind of seen as a big deal, I mean, we're talking nearly 50 years ago, so it may, you know, you're absolutely right when you say it was a, quite a brave move, but it's, it's something that now just wouldn't be given a second thought, I wouldn't think. So it's, um, it's a testament to how, how times were versus town, how times are today let's move on a little bit further with some some more information and facts so so this film actually doesn't have q appear at all which is um interesting because i i was under the impression that he was basically in every one um but the producers thought that there was too much being made of the gadgets in the franchise so there was no need for q in this which i thought was quite an interesting decision to not have him appear but still as you discussed earlier there are still a number of gadgets in the in the movie so almost contradictory points there i would say so solitaire has tarot cards um, and i noticed this a couple of times in the film and i think this is quite a nice little easter egg but the design on the back of the card have 007 printed on them so it's um on first glance you would just see it look like any any pack of tarot cards or any type of card but as you look closely you see the 007 logo kind of etched into the design which i thought was Quite a nice, uh, nice little touch. And the High Priestess was deliberately designed to resemble Jane Seymour, uh, which I must admit I didn't particularly pay attention to, but that's, uh, that's a good find there, Jay. Um, final point from me on this is uh, director Guy Hamilton liked the, the running over alligator stunt so much that he named the villain after the stuntman who performed it, Ross Kananga, um, who actually owned the alligator farm where the scene was filmed. Um, that's a that's a nice touch there, and I must admit when I was reading through the notes and I saw uh, a little bit later on where we talk about Ross Kananga, I did wonder whether you'd make made a typo, but but this obviously you know kind of explains that, and I, I was thinking has, has he made a mistake here? You know, Kananga's not the stuntman; he's the villain. Now it turns out he's both, so that's uh, that's a nice touch there. Did you um, fat check my fat, Andy? Um, I did not. I I just I saw that comment. I, I didn't obviously read the notes in order. I saw, saw the 
the later note first. And then as I scrolled back, I noticed that one. I was like, oh, okay, that explains it. <laughs> but I, I trust your research. Thank you. There's no fake news on this podcast, is there, Andy? Uh, only, my so far, but... only my quiz. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's more than fake news. That's an absolute travesty. <laughs> but we'll move on to that later on. So we mentioned in a previous episode that Lois Maxwell had asked for a pay rise to continue in the Bond franchise. So she obviously returned for Live and Let Die, um, but it turned out, Andy, that she returned for the same fee. Um, they, they wouldn't actually give her a pay rise, but it did work out for her because the scene that she was in um, at the beginning, you know, with Bond's house, there was actually some technical problems. So she had to um, do filming for an extra two days. So it meant actually she, she did get a, a pay rise in the end in a roundabout way. So it worked out well for Miss Money Penny. Hope she got time and a half for those. <laughs> yeah. Maybe more. I don't know. She she got what she wanted. So um she apparently bought some kind of new coat um to celebrate her, you know, her extra bit of salary. So yeah, the next bit we're gonna talk about is goose and continuity error. So Andy's very good at picking these out. So I've got three, Andy, and then I'm gonna pass over to you to see what you've got. So so at the beginning in San Monique, there's there's the bit where the bloke is holding the the snake, and I don't know if you picked this up. I think it was so obvious. Where in the the bits where he the cameraman is behind the actor, the hand um, is actually on the the snake's head pretty much or near it. But then when the shots are taken in front of the actor, so you can see the the bloke holding a snake. It's, it's just obviously half, well not, it's lower down the body's neck, um, snake's neck. And so I thought that was really obvious there. Um, so I don't know if you picked up on that bit, Andy. I did, yeah, it was it was blatant. Yeah, so even my untrained eyes picked up that one. Um, at the beginning as well, there's a bit where Bond goes into the, the taxi outside the voodoo shop and you can see the film crew in the reflection of the car. And then a bit later on, um, yeah, we mentioned... Um, and we mentioned cars and ramps in the previous one with flipping between two wheels. And um, this isn't a, a two wheel um, situation, but you do see where there's a bit where the taxi goes up the stairs. You, but as he's doing it, you can actually see the, the ramp that they've made um, where the, the taxi goes up and actually crashes into some bins, um, trash cans um, as well. So they're the, the three that I kind of picked, noticed. Um, what about you? Uh, so there was a, a bit later on where there's a female pilot, she stops the plane, Bond's talking to her, and you can see that the wings behind her are still intact. But earlier in the scene, they were ripped off in the plane chase. So obviously a bit of a, I don't know if that's just a continuity issue or whether they're just because they filmed those scenes out of order or edited them out of order, but that was, that was a pretty big boo-boo. There's a there's one where Teehee Johnson leaves Bond on the island in the, in the pond. Um, the first crocodile that, that climbs up changes between alligator and crocodile between shots. I must admit, I didn't notice that myself. I think this is one of one of your finds, so, so well done on that. But um, for any animal lovers out there, I'm sure you would have noticed the difference between alligator and crocodiles. Uh, this one I found, and I, it's a little bit of a, a nitpicking one, but it's, it's one that I, I was kind of looking for because uh, I'm strange like that and I look for, for errors but Bond and Solitaire are in bed together Bond's wearing his watch and it's around 10 past 10 and then you know they're, they're having a little chat and the, you know there's a couple of different camera angles used and then seconds later his watch says it's around 1 30 so I'm assuming that's because of the length of time it took to film that scene but 
Um, obviously, in terms of continuity, that's a, uh, an error if you spot those sort of things. And the final one for me is, is around the car chasing. So there's four police cars that crash at one time. And in the fourth car, you can clearly see that the driver's wearing a crash helmet. There was no attempt to kind of cover that up or, or hide that. So he's you know, clearly a stunt driver, not a real policeman. Safety first, Andy. Um, and also when you mentioned about Bond and Solitaire in bed, um, I was surprised you picked that up. And if I'm honest, because um, you're usually looking for um, nipple plasters or something when Bond is in bed with a Bond girl. So I was surprised you picked that one up. Uh, yeah, I have no comment. <laughs> I'm okay. not saying that you're wrong, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's all the goose and continuity um, ones that we kind of just wanted to highlight. So we're into the film now, Andy. So the the famous gun barrel sequence. So this shot, actually, um, the change. So we're obviously on to the, the eighth film, eighth episode. And this is the fourth time that they've changed the gun barrel sequence. And also, this is the only time that this introduction, about, you know, the gun barrel introduction sequence is used in this film. And then the next one, The Man with the Golden Gun. So they, they changed it again after two films of Roger Moore. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. And, and also, uh, Roger Moore's wearing a business suit and he uses both hands. So when we think of the previous gun barrel sequence, the actors tend to hold the gun in their right hand and then shoot just with their right hand. But in this one, Moore shoots with the right right hand but uses his left to kind of su- support the gun, um, holding arms. So he's kind of using both. Um, and also, this is the first time where the sequence has Bond without a hat, which um, I must say I didn't I didn't pay attention to that. I obviously noticed that there was no hat, but I assumed that they'd have changed that earlier for Connery or Lazenby, but clearly not. So I need to I need to look out for things other than nipples, I guess, because I'm missing <laughs> out on these important details. Yeah, and we're obviously doing the, the hat watch. And I thought that was interesting that this is the the first gun battle sequence where he's he's not wearing a hat. Um, and obviously, you know, we've said a few times, um, or I don't know if it's just me, Andy, because I got a fascination about hats. Um, when is it that Bond is going to stop routinely wearing hats? And I wonder it's now. We've we've reached it. We're just going to have to check um, the next few films to see that's it then. And now when we do our little hat watch, it's just always going to be a no. Um, but yeah, so that that's definitely the, the switch. And Andy, just just a thought, and you know, I don't know if you know this, it's just occurred to me where you mentioned about more holding the gun slash arm with both hands. Has Bond always been right-handed? Do you know? Because I'm just thinking about the gun barrel. You know how he, he comes in and the, the stance. It's always the the right hand. Has there been any Bonds that's left-handed? I don't know if you know that or if any listeners can drop us a um you know a tweet or a message on any of the social media platforms i would have to assume he's always right-handed because i only remember the gun barrel sequence coming in from the right hand side and then turning to his left mm-hmm. which means that he's firing with his right yeah, yeah. What an interesting question i'm full of an andy <laughs> Okay, so straight after the gun barrel sequence, we're, we're straight at the um, UN. So he's in, um, I believe, New York. So this bit, this is obviously um, straight away in the film, and me and the missus were like, 
what? So we're at the UN and the UK, um, you know, focuses on the, the person representing the UK with the old um, headphones, because obviously, you know, the translation um, is happening. Um, but he gets assassinated and then he kind of stands up, collapses on the desk in front of him. But then everyone else around the room is just like staring. He's like, oh, what's going on? No one seems interested or even shocked or even like moves to the the, um, the bloke from the UK. So I don't know if that is, um, that's the opinion. You know, we just have such a low um you know in the uk we're just so lowly thought of and this is before brexit andy as well there's no one is just like showing any kind of interest that the uk person's just like dropped dead in front of them and then i know what i think you know in terms of all the marketing you probably know who the baddie is it and you have the bloke from the uk and then there's two white blokes to the blokes right then it cuts to dr kananga doesn't it and solitaire and, you know, obviously you, you, you know that he's going to be the baddie, but it just cuts, he could have cut to anyone. And I think it's just highlighting that, you know, this dude is suspicious. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder whether everyone just recognised that the speech was really boring and he'd just fallen asleep and they were all like, yeah, he's fallen asleep. I don't blame him. And that's why they were not interested. But um, I, I, I know we've kind of not made note of how he died here, but it was kind of, like death by sound and it was a bit of a strange way to die i thought i'm not i'm i was trying to think of like the logistics of how it, it would have killed him some sort of sound change into his brain but um i couldn't really figure it out but, but something down the headphones clearly killed him i was thinking of going to say some witty comment about some kind of band but i don't want to alienate any of our listeners <laughs> by saying a particular <laughs> type of band but yeah it, yeah, it was a bit um, weird because yeah, in the um, the the translation room, you obviously just see a hand and the the, the it's a bloke's hand change the um, cables, doesn't he? And then yeah, um, does the thing. But yeah, I wonder if it's something like high frequency or something. But yeah, yeah, must be. Um, but it's a it's pro- it's probably a say a mystery to me and you and maybe no one else. Everyone probably knows, but yeah, for me it just. Couldn't really explain it, uh, but from uh, from the UN, kind of just before we get inside, I thought the aerial shot as they showed the building was very shaky camera work. Clearly done from a helicopter of some sort, but the the camera work was was quite shaky beforehand. Uh, but swiftly from New York, we're on to New York, New Orleans, and we have a funeral procession uh, coming through the streets, and we see the MI6 agent kind of leaning against a post, uh, looking on. Uh, as the funeral procession and the brass band goes by. It's a lot of effort to kill him though, isn't it? I mean, he's he's leaning there, he's watching this procession and uh, the guy comes up to him and he asks him the question, uh, whose funeral is this? And he says, yours. And stabs him, down he goes. The, uh, the carriers of the coffin walk over to him, they drop the coffin on his body and then when they lift the coffin up, he's gone. Um, and then it turns into, you know, a jazz jazz brass band, which is the olympia brass band uh, which is an american band from new orleans happy music and uh, away they go very memorable scene a lot of effort to kill an agent um or at least hide the body um, but certainly one of the ones i remembered um as kind of one of those iconic scenes that live in the memory yeah i definitely agree with you andy there um i know <laughs> it, this it's just 
I know, you know, we talk about convoluted um, methods of killing or trying to assassinate people. We talked about Mr. Wind and um, Mr. Kid in the previous movie. But, you know, these are obviously all hide the, uh, the bad, you know, the baddie, the villains. Now, from my point of view, I'm thinking you could hire an assassin and, you know, it'd be one cost. But now this bloke has to fork out on all the procession, you know, funeral procession, paying for each of the people, um, you know, that's done all the, um, you know, the, the music and everything. It just adds up in terms of the cost. Yeah, so Andy, you know, in terms of the, um, the, the brass band, um, interesting fact that the, the assassin um, is actually a member of the brass band, Alvin Alcorn. Um, so I thought that was a nice little nod um, there. Um, and the brass band pays, plays two pieces of music. So you've got the, you know, the bit at the beginning that's um, you know, a lot more down and sad, and that is actually called Just a Closer Walk with the. And then, you know, the bit where you said and the music kind of then picks up um, and then, the, you know, they drop the coffin and it's a bit more um, happier um, is Joe Avery's um, piece, also known as the New Second Line. So I thought that was a nice um, nod to actually have a, a quite famous American jazz band in the, the movie. Yeah, that is a, that's a good touch um, and, and a good touch about, about the assassin having that as part of the band ties it together nicely. Uh, we swiftly move on to San Monique and another agent being killed. We've got some sort of tribal ceremony and sacrifice. And, and this is the uh, the snake scene that we referred to earlier. It's a very fake looking snake. It has to be said. There were, at no point did I think this was a real snake or, you know, they were using a stuntman with real snake or anything like that. It was very obviously fake. And as someone who's not a fan of snakes, I didn't mind that at all. But it... it it's obvious. Yeah, it was definitely, it, it looked really rubbery, um, is what I put it down. Yeah, so Andy, this is one of the few Bond movies that doesn't feature James Bond in the initial sequence. I would say, do you know what the other one is? But, you know, we've talked about this before, so I won't. But any listeners out there, and um, there's been one other one so far, um, and it was from Russia with Love. And that is the one where you see Red Grant in the, the grounds of um, a mansion and then you see um, someone impersonating Bond. So, yeah, that's I thought that was an interesting one because you usually kind of think um, all the intro sequences usually kind of focus um, on Bond. And I also, Andy, I thought this one, um, I don't know in terms of timings, I didn't measure this, but you know, in this intro sequence, even before the intro sequence in terms of the music, we've dotted around three locations already. So I thought that, I thought that was, um, I don't know in terms of time is how long that was, but you know, you, you've gone from the UN with the assassination, you've gone to New Orleans, the assassination, then you've gone to um, San, San Monique with the assassination. And obviously that is, you know, where they, they, they talked to Bond later on. But I thought that was quite interesting, you know, the, the three different locations, even before you get into the the opening title sequence with the music. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff happening. It felt quite fast. It kind of, you know, they dotted around place to place quite quickly, I thought. But I think it it was a good use of that time to to set the scene for for what lies ahead. And there was a lot of lot of action as well in those first few minutes. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to the um, Diamonds of Forever, you know, the 
the intro bit where Bond is tracking down Blofeld um, as well. So, um, yeah, so we're into the title sequence now and the music. So, um, as Andy mentioned, this is obviously Paul McCartney um, and the Wings. Um, so this is the first true rock song used in an opening of a Bond film. So it's a, it's a good song as well. And also, Andy, this is the first Bond film that did not involve John Barry. So Barry was actually working on a musical and he had fallen out actually with um, Harry Saltzman over the Diamonds Are Forever song. Um, Saltzman apparently didn't like Diamonds Are Forever. He didn't like the tune and he felt some of the words in there was quite dirty. So John Barry um, didn't come back for this film. And also just a couple more points, Andy, before I pass over to you. Um, Paul McCartney, obviously, massive artist, you know, former Beatles. And due to his high salary, there wasn't actually enough music budget um, to afford a, a composer. So what happened was um, Paul McCartney and the producers managed to get George Martin, who obviously, you know, I, not, I don't know if you're a fan of the Beatles. I, I personally am not. Um, but he was, um, he's famous for being a producer for the Beatles. So he actually ended up writing the score for this film. Yeah, that's interesting. Very kind of keep it in-house with... Uh... With the Beatles connection and, and McCartney doing a lot of the legwork. Uh, the song itself, an absolute banger. Uh, it was nominated for an Academy Award, but lost out to Barbara Streisand's The Way We Were. Um, Saltzman actually envisaged a female soul singer uh, for the song. He originally hired BJR New, I'm going to say, is the, is the pronunciation, BJR New to record and perform the song, uh, but didn't realize that McCartney had intended to perform it all along. But later in the film, we see B.J. Anu performing the song during the nightclub scene where Bond and Lighter are at the table, which uh, I thought was a, a nice little touch, having the theme song within the film. And not surprisingly, uh, the song was a massive success in the US and UK charts, uh, and Paul would perform it on his tour. Um, you know, the, the song that they lost out in terms of the Oscars, the Barbra Streisand song, um, are you familiar with it? I'm not. Is it from? And I was gonna. I, my guess would be, is it from A Star Is Born? Uh, I don't know. I googled it and I listened to it on YouTube because I thought, um, what you know, I wanted to find out what song it lost out to. So I YouTubed it and I listened to it, um, and it's a good song. I don't know if it is the one um, that you just mentioned. Debatable if I think it's better than the the you know Live and Let Die song, but it is a very famous and good song. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you can find out if it is from the, the film that you just it's mentioned. No, I think it's from the fil a film of the same name, The Way We Were, which is not something I've heard of. So we'll cut that out because otherwise I'll sound stupid. <laughs> <don't we? laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, following the opening sequence, we're over to Bond's house. Um, it's early in the morning, eight, uh, not 8.48. It's 5.48. It's even earlier than I thought. 5.48 in the morning and M makes a house call. Uh, we know it's 5.48 because it says on Bond's watch, which is a digital watch, um, which for 1973 is pretty new because the first one was only released in 1972, which was the Pulsar. Yeah, and, you know, he's obviously got an electronic digital watch and I suppose, you know, he's a spy, so he's got the, the latest mod cons. But I was a bit surprised with his house because the, the living room, I don't know if you call it the living room or not, um, it was... It had a very classical feel to it, Andy. But then when you um, when you went into the kitchen, it was all full of like the mod cons. 
Um, it was very modern. So it had two kind of um, conflicting styles um, in his house. I thought that was quite interesting. So I don't know if he decorated it. It's one of those things where you think, obviously, he did have a wife. You know, did they do one room? He did the other room. But obviously, that's not the situation in this circumstance. But yeah, and he's, he's obviously got a, a fancy coffee maker as well, which M didn't seem overly impressed with, did he? When he got his coffee in the end. M didn't seem impressed with anything, really, in this scene. No, he didn't. And then we've got Money Penny um, arriving at Bond's house. So we've got M and Bond in the kitchen. Um, and then we've got Money Penny, who just, you know, he comes in. And I wonder whether she's ever been there before. You know, she um, obviously, I meant in a purely platonic way, Andy, because I don't think Money Penny or Bond have done anything apart from flirting and the the kiss was it Lazenby when you point you know picked Lazenby, out yeah. yeah and a bit of a slap wasn't it uh, um, as as well um, but Money Penny sees a half naked Miss Caruso um, who's the missing Italian agent that um, M is mentioning to Bond about following his latest mission um, so I thought that was um. I liked it that they were in Bond's house. You know, it wasn't the normal um, M's office. You know, there's an urgency about, you know, this mission isn't there because the, the free agents have died. To, he's gone to make a house call. Yeah, um, I like that as well. Obviously, early in the morning would suggest the urgency. Could have just called him on his mobile, but, you know, 1973, so that would have been a problem. Bond is rocking some personalised PJs. Um, good spot, Jay. Um, I, I'd not paid attention. I think I was looking for nipples again or something. Um, I'm, I'm going to read this note, and I don't know what it means, but you've, you've put, I wonder if the current Bond shops at Etsy. Now, this is this is me showing my, my lack of um, modern awareness, but what's Etsy? <laughs> or who is Etsy? Etsy. Or where uh, is Etsy? Just so people know, we are not sponsored by Etsy. This episode has not been sponsored by Etsy. So Etsy... Um, is a platform, a website where basically um, you could make stuff and then sell it. So it's all like customized. Um, so it could be um, bookmarks, pajamas, pottery, um, those family calendars that you see with cartoon people, pebble people. So it's basically um, a website where um, anyone can make something and sell it on their platform. So when I made that note, I just wondered whether Bond was basically, you know, if it was a current Bond like Daniel Craig, is he on Etsy doing his personalised gym jams? Because obviously you can't just walk up to um, M&S and just, you know, look through all those ones. So you have to personalise it somehow. So, you know, in my comment, and it's funny because the day before I was on Etsy looking for something, and I think that's why I made the comment. <laughs> You're going to check it out, but Etsy, anyone listening from Etsy, you can sponsor us if you want. Yeah, we accept all forms of cash. Even Bitcoin. Um, I'm not sure about Bitcoin. You know, I've just, <laughs> I don't even know what Etsy is, so how am I going to cope with Bitcoin? Uh, but but anyway, before I, I dig my uncool hole any further, so M's with Bond, he's giving him a bit of stick. Um, he's trying out the, the magnetic watch, a bullet strength. Um, M's very annoyed throughout the scene. Um, I think it, this is the spot where he kind of uses the magnet to take his spoon away from him, even though she stood across the room, which I thought was, was quite amusing. Um, and as they're leaving, Moneypenny says goodbye, um, but she pauses 
and adds, or should I say, Ciao Bella, which was uh, a nice little touch because um, obviously Bond doesn't know that she knows that Miss Caruso's in the house, but Moneypenny knows because she's kind of helped hide her. Yeah. And sorry for anyone out there who's Italian, who we just butcher their language when we do, you know, little ciao bellas and stuff like that. Or when we do our little um, one-liners and quotes, we're not actors, even though Andy, obviously, in the last episode was pushing out his services there. And let's, let's add fluent Italian to my resume. <laughs> ciao bella. There you go. If, if you it go. wasn't offensive before, I've added a bit of an accent, so there you go. I think it's really good. Um. Yeah, so, you know, you just mentioned about the magnetic watch. So Bond uses that to slowly unzip Miss Caruso's dress. And that's, this is one of those things where, you know, we've said it before, Andy, where it happens, you kind of, or it's just, just about to happen, you kind of recall that that is, you know, you remember that bit. Um, and also, Andy, you know, Miss Caruso has the honour of being Roger Moore's first Bond girl. Then, you know, I think that's that's a big honour, you know. Um, we're, we're just in in the movie, and we've got Bond Girl number one for Roger Moore. And interesting um, fact as well that um, Miss Caruso um, is played by Madeline Smith, and Madeline Smith and Roger Moore actually um, appear together on the TV show The Persuaders, and was recommended by Roger Moore for this um, for this role. Um, Andy, I don't know if you've seen The Persuaders. I've seen the odd episode because my dad just watches stuff on UK Gold all the time. So whenever I've gone around there or when I was growing up, you know, leaving, you know, before um, going off to uni and stuff like that, um, he used to always have, he still does have UK Gold on. And I remember things like The Saint, The Persuaders and all that. Um, so I don't know. Obviously, it's before both our times, but I don't know if you're familiar with The Persuaders I, I know of the Persuaders. Uh, my dad was big into the Saint as well. Um, not so much the Persuaders, I don't think. But yeah, like your your dad, mine's always watching the the old UK Gold uh, channel. Usually, only Fools and Horses is his go to. Um, but no links to no link to the Bond movie, as far as we're aware. And talking about old shows and fathers, Andy, um, my dad this year wanted box sets of Thunderbirds, Joe Knighty, uh, Captain Scarlet. So I was looking around, and because they're obviously old shows, it took me a bit of time to find them um, DVD box sets, and they're not cheap either, <laughs> you know, because they're so old. So, yes, yeah, so it was a bit frustrating. But that's, yeah, he, he, um, I find, I, I wonder, you know, when we both get older, we're, you know, we're lucky enough to get older, um, Will we be watching programs that we watched when we were younger and our kids will be like thinking what we think? Like, why aren't you watching more modern programs? Are we going to be stuck in that cycle? Because I think, you know, when I'm listening to certain music, I listen to modern music, but there's there's days where I will listen to music that I listened to when I was a teenager. And then I think, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be the same with TV programs, watching programs with like, dodgy um, CGI and bits like that in the future when there's going to be loads more, more that, advanced that films. That is interesting. So I am the opposite. I don't listen to much modern music at all. Um, I think I've listened to one album that was released this calendar year. Um, I'm just, I'm not with it. But from a TV perspective, um, it's interesting you say that. Um, I, we touched on briefly that I'm a, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. And I'm currently 
going through old episodes of Monday Night Raw from the mid to late 90s, kind of in order, just to see what happened back in the heyday. Uh, so that's a good good trip down memory lane. I think at the moment I'm about 25 years behind where we are today. So I've kind of already begun that that journey just in a in a very niche market. And you're younger than me, and you? I I am. Uh, let's get back to the to the film and uh, Miss Caruso. Um, in the Italian version of the movie, she's actually a French agent, which is uh, quite an interesting little sidebar. Uh, from Bond's house, we're on to New York next. Um, we get the initial pickup after his arrival. Um, he's looking the part. Is is more? He's he's very sophisticated, very smart, um, and I think. Touching on a point that your wife made around him being more of a gentleman, I think that comes across in this, in these scenes that he's got that kind of gentlemanly appearance, um, a bit more. Maybe it's just a bit more grown up than than Connery, um, and maybe you know, maybe that's reflected in the age of the actors and maybe the age of of Bond at this time. But he's he's a bit more of a sophisticated gentleman, I would say, at this point. Um, we also get to see Felix Leiter, um, who's appeared in several films now, and yet again, it's a different actor. Uh, this time around, it's David Hedison who takes on the part. Uh, interesting fact about Hedison, that him and Jeffrey Wright are the only actors to play Leiter more than once. So we know we're going to see Hedison later on in the series, but um, up to this point, every appearance of Felix Leiter has been played by a different actor. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I didn't realise that um, David Hedison played Felix in this movie. I remember him from the later movie, I do. So I didn't realise he was in this earlier movie. Um, and there's quite a few years between this one and the next one he appears in. So I thought that was interesting that they, they had him come back. Carrying on, so Bond's driver um, is shot and I would say this is a true drive-by shooting, Andy, you know, because the driver, when we find out it's Whisper, uses the gun in the side mirrors um, to shoot Bond's driver. It's unlucky, you know, the um, Bond's driver has the window open because there aren't a, um, I don't, you know, correct me, Andy, you've been to America. Is it like a freeway that they're on? They're on some kind of like ring road or something, aren't they? I don't think it's just a normal street from memory. It's, I'm going to go like an overpass yeah, or something, wasn't to, it? I think going over one of the bridges. Ah, right. My my New York bridge knowledge is somewhat limited. I don't know if it's it's the Brooklyn Bridge, for example. Could be yeah, wrong no. on that, but but yeah, I think it's freeway leading to the bridge. Just the you know, just because I'm a bit anal, um, I never had my windows open on motorways or ring roads because of the um the speed that you're traveling at the air resistance coming through the window makes you use more petrol slash diesel. So I always keep my windows closed. Anyway, interesting point. If the bonds driver was similar to me in terms of being tight, in terms of petrol and diesel, he would have had the window closed and therefore potentially saving his life. Just to point out. So we see later on, not too much later, we see bond locating the car that Whisper's been driving. Um, and then you see him, Bond, examining the side mirror. And I thought, why? Because Bond didn't see Whisper using the 
the side mirror to shoot the driver. So why is he kind of gravitating to that side mirror? How, how did he know that they're the gone? Because, you know, as far as Bond knew, because um, he was, you know, he was obviously looking around, but Whisper could have just shot, you know, just had his arm, you know, across the, um, you know, inside of his car to shoot him. Why was Bond, you know, looking, you know, on the, the side mirror? I thought that was a bit weird. Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because um, he didn't even notice that he'd been shot straight away, did he? So he definitely couldn't have seen the shot uh, or or even indeed where it originated from. So uh, maybe it's just a lucky guess on his part. I've, I've added a note here, and I know this is not really too interesting as such, but uh, something we've noted in previous films is that there are obvious use, uses of stuntmen, um, which, of course, there will be stuntmen used throughout, but you know the, the blatantness of, of the stuntmen has been obvious to see in the film so far but i thought this scene particularly not so much i'm assuming it was a stuntman used here but at no point did i think oh that's definitely a stuntman i think the way they they shot it was was much better than in previous films so uh, a sign of improvement i would say in this scene if nowhere else we continue with uh, new york and we've got a taxi journey into harlem um bond's picked up by a taxi driver um and it, it made some comment around what I'd do for twenty dollars. And uh, the taxi driver, who's who's a black guy, um, actually says to Bond, "For twenty dollars, I'd take him to a Ku Klux Klan cookout," which uh, was a funny little line, I thought. Um, and I guess twenty dollars back in nineteen seventy-three was a fair chunk of change. So, yeah. So Bond now is um, arrives in Harlem, and. It just seems like everyone was involved with the the criminal under you know the underworld here because as Bond is you know the the taxi driver Bond is following you know the car you just see like random people radio in um, where Bond's location was and then when the taxi driver stops and lets him out um, he then gets the the radio out doesn't he and says oh he's coming in so it just seems like everyone is on the payroll. Um, within you know that whole sequence, um, so I don't know how realistic that was. Um, and then we were introduced to T. He Johnson for the first time, um, and you know his pincer tit prosthetic arm, um, which <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, Sandy, and I don't know if I'm just being a bit picky, but you know if you put the arms out together, it, that one is just blatantly so long, and it looked like I don't know this is how they did it. He's basically holding the pincer bit, the actor. You know, it just looks so obvious that it's too long. It's not like, you know, in this, he obviously says later on that he lost his arm. Um, I think Crocodile Alligator um, bit it off. But it just looks like basically the pincer is added to his hand so that it's just too long is what I noticed um, pretty much straight away. Yeah, I agree. It's almost like he's wearing a big metal glove yeah. rather, than a, rather than a fake arm. Yeah. Um, so... In this scene, we've got a couple of henchmen that are kind of escorting Bond to his imminent doom, I believe. Uh, so he needs to get rid of them, and he does very, very easily, I thought, as, it, as they're kind of walking through some of the back streets. He pulls a ladder down from kind of a fire exit. Um, one of the guys bumps into that, and he's out cold, and then Bond comes around with a pretty weak-looking kick, it has to be said, and the henchmen are down, and they stay down. I thought it was just very, very weak on their behalf that they would go down so easily. Moving on, let's keep let's keep the story rolling. We're off to Stamonique next. Uh, Bond goes to check into his hotel room, um, and Mrs. Bond has changed his room on his behalf. Um, and the 
receptionist says Mrs. Bond has been expecting you, which I wonder whether that was a, a subtle callback to Blofeld um, and the we've been expecting you, Mr. Bond line from previous films. Um, that was just a, a nice little touch there. Yeah, I didn't pick that point up handy. Um, I picked up that it was obviously Mrs. Bond. But yeah, I didn't pick up any kind of potential relationship to, that you kind of picked up there in terms of Blofeld. So we see, you know, a little bit later on, Bond is having a nice bath and shave. I don't know, this is the first time we see Bond having a bath, Andy, but the that whole sequence, um, that scene, is just, you know, it just seems to be Bond is more, you know, he's, he's stylish and he's looking after himself. But we see someone release a, a snake through a hatch, but, you know, Bond doesn't confront, he doesn't find the snake for a little while. So we then got Whisper comes in, um, into the room, Bond's having a bath and he obviously gets out um, and whispers dropping off the drink and then he leaves. And I don't know if this is a continuity error or not. And I put it on the notes. I don't know if you noticed this and it might, you know, it might be completely wrong, but when whispers in the living room or, you know, the, the, the main room of the, the hotel, Bond is in there and he obviously signs off to, you know, the receipt to say he's got the drink. Then he returns to the bathroom, but I didn't notice Bond turning off the light in the, the main room. But then we see Bond then killing the snake, and then he returns to the living room, the main room, and the lights are off because then you start seeing like the hand and gun come through the door. So I don't know if I if if I missed that he he turned the lights off or not, or I'm just getting confused about that bit. But that's a note I made. You know, I I can't remember him turning it off because the next bit because it's not lit up when the the gun and the hand comes through. It's just something I noticed. I don't know if it's a continuity bit or you just or he flicks the light off for some reason. But he didn't have the light off in the living room when he was having a bath anyway. Because when Whisper walks in, the the light is on. I can't say I noticed it, but it's a good point because I think the the lighting is quite important to the hand coming through the door in terms of the shadows and stuff. So that's uh, that's an interesting one. Good spot. Uh, we see that the hand belongs to Rosie Carver, the CIA operative. Um, eventually, he figures out that she's not the enemy. She is on the same side, at least for now. Um, he's been very smooth, very charming, quite gentlemanly. Later on, we see Bond... Uh, in a change of clothes and not only does he rock the denim but he also goes double denim at one point which is a very big departure from Connery's portrayal of Bond which I don't think had any any denim at all um, it was always kind of much more smartly dressed but maybe this is just a sign of the times more of a 70s look uh, for Roger Moore and later on Bond and Rosie they're off to find uh, the location of where the agent was murdered so they can investigate Bond gets again a bit suspicious. Uh, they stop for a bit, um, and he pulls a gun out on her and says something about not killing her before the deed. She makes a getaway, and she's shot by one of the scarecrows, um, which seem to have, I think, is it cameras for eyes, and then obviously some sort of firing mechanism as well. Yeah, that's. Um, I thought that was quite good. I don't know what your opinion of your, Rosie is, Andy, and I don't know if you want to touch on this a bit later on when we do the rankings, but... She, I don't think she was a strong Bond girl, personally. And I don't know if she, you know, because obviously you find out that she's working for um, Mr. Big slash Mr. Um, Dr. Kananga. But, you know, she comes across as um, 
you know, in that initial bit, quite ditzy and scared, but I don't know, like a bit fumbling. So I don't know if all that was a bit of an act to try to get Bond to lower his guard or not. Because then you obviously find out that bit that you just mentioned that she's actually working for um, the bad guys. So I don't know, yeah, what your view of her was. Uh, ditzy is the first word that comes to mind. Uh, it's good that you said that, because that's exactly my, my thought about her. And I guess we don't really get to find out whether it is an act or not. Um, and I guess there's arguments that it could be either way, but yeah, she she doesn't seem particularly strong-willed or strong-minded. Um, but I guess if you're wanting to get onto Bond's good side, acting a bit ditzy and you know needing a strong man to put his arms around you is probably the best way to act. So so maybe she's a genius. Maybe, maybe. But obviously Tracy was very strong-minded, wasn't she? And she was lucky to become Bond's wife, short-lived, obviously. So carrying on, we see Bond and Quarrel Jr. So this, so you see Bond on the hang glider, um, Andy, and he's being being pulled by Quarrel's boat. Um, you've, you know, to a couple of points there, he's he's just like you know this smoothness as well because he's being pulled, you know, with the hang glider by the boat, and he's just enjoying a cigar just you know up there um as well and this isn't actually stated in the film um but you know as part of the research that we did um quarrel junior um is supposed to be the son of quarrel from dr no so i thought that was a nice little link um because obviously this is um set in and around um the caribbean so um jamaica as well as san monique um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. And you know, in terms of stylish, we see Bond and me and the missus both <laughs> commented on this straight away. So Bond lands on the island, he knocks out the goon, um, and then he does the reversible suit. So you know, very practical. He's always got to look the part, hasn't he? <laughs> you know, I bet a lot of other kind of spy movies, the the um, the main the main person wouldn't be bothered about you know reversing his suit jacket would they? you just kind of just get on with the mission but bond you know just flips it straight away um and then kind of proceeds into um the building yeah it's good if you need to get a, a disguise and a quick getaway just you know turn your jacket inside out you're a new person practically that's a nice little touch we see that bond meets solitaire um they have a little bit of a back and forth over the tarot deck and there's the card the lovers drawn which clearly makes solitaire think that bond is the man for her um, and i think there's there's a bit earlier in the film where she calls it on her own before bond arrives and then she picks the card again and it's the lovers again so clearly that's a sign and then we find out that actually it was rigged and every card is the same so bonds manipulated her with with the tarot deck bond and solitaire do what bond does and and it turns out that Solitaire is actually a virgin, um, so Bond has the honour of taking her honour, in a way. I don't know, there's no more graceful way of saying that. But yeah, it turns out she was saving herself for Kananga, or at least Kananga is expecting her to save herself for him, because I think there's a reference that later on to how her mother saved herself for Kananga or, or treated him. So that was uh, quite a... <sighs> quite disturbing in a way i think it was a bit i felt like that that 
detail is a little bit unnecessary. But one thing um, that I think you noted and I totally agree with is that that more is is more tender, gentle with the ladies than Connery was as Bond. He's um, you know he's clearly still a womanizer and he's still getting plenty of of action, but he seems to be a little bit more respectful um, as Bond than Connery was. Yeah, he's, he's definitely more tender, respectful. I, I don't know, Andy, because he's just rigged the, the card deck. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> Respectful's the wrong bond. word. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, because he's... Maybe he's re refined his technique a little bit. <laughs> because, um, and obviously, you know, when he um, reveals the deck and it's rigged, I wonder whether he just had to buy tons of cards then to take out the lover's one and then put them all in one deck or can you just buy a deck just full of lovers can you just imagine bond after he, he just slept with rosie could he go to the card shop then doesn't he at the hotel room and then he just says oh i want you to buy 200 cars and he just sit you know sat there <laughs> on the, the deck or something just picking out i need that one i need that one and that one just to do just to do this plan just in the gift shop yeah and in his suitcase <laughs> he's got all the other cards <laughs> filled up to take back as a souvenir um so, yeah, so um, carrying on. Uh, oh, actually, another point, Andy. Um, Kananga had a lot of restraint, didn't he? Because he was obviously expecting to be a first. Um, Solitaire is a very good-looking lady, so he's done well to, to resist, hasn't he? Yeah. For I don't know how many years Solitaire's been working for him, but, yeah, definitely. So carrying on, so we've got Bon and Solitaire are escaping, um, but another point, so this is the same with Harlem. Everyone on the island seems to be working for Kananga. So everyone's just involved with this. You know, the bit, you know, before he's obviously escaping um, where Solitaire was, um, going through the fields with all the, you know, the plants and everything. And then, you know, he's going to find um, a vehicle to get away and you just got like the police are there radioing. And you just got, everyone just seems to be working um, for Kananga. And so it's a very close-knit community. And I quite like this as well with Bond um, driving a double-decker bus. I don't recall him driving a double-decker bus before this film um, and he's chased by the henchmen and goons. And Andy, just a little fact that I didn't put down in these notes, um, in some of those scenes, Roger Moore was actually driving the bus as well. They did get a, a stuntman who was a bus driver um, doing the, the dangerous bits and apparently he, took, he was practicing for something like six weeks as well but there were actually some bits where Roger Moore was actually you know doing the driving and being closely observed by the stuntman that's interesting maybe that's why it's not obviously stuntman being used because it's not always so that's uh, that's an interesting point uh, the double-decker bus uh, is being chased by the goons on I think they're are they police bikes um, you know, it's the local police that work for Kananga. Um, but as, they, as they're going along the road, there seems to be a bit of a puddle. I don't know if it's a, a leak or something, but there's a bit of a wet patch on the road. And the bikes go flying. Um, just to fall fall off way too easy. I think one even goes like up and over the edge of the road. It's, um, you know, it's like bikes are not made for wet weather. It seems to be much too easy um, for Bond to escape them. Uh, we're back in New Orleans next. Uh, Bond and Solitaire arrive. Uh, they're picked up by a taxi driver. Just so happens to be the same driver that picked them up in New York as well. Um, and he refers to Bond as Jim. Um, 
watching obviously short for James but a nice nice little bit of disrespect there I thought by by the taxi driver and later on we see Bond tries hand as a flight instructor there's a there's a flight school at the airport and Bond nips in and there's a female student I guess for lack of a better term that is having uh, waiting for her lesson and there's a bit of a chase round at the airport in the plane um, with Gunanga's goons in hot pursuit. Yeah, I like this bit, Andy, I did, because we obviously mentioned in the previous film, we got the moon buggy chase. Um, and I definitely thought this was a marked improvement with the the plane and the, the car chase. It's obviously not, um, it's not long. It doesn't cover vast amount of distance. It's basically just going around the airfield, the air, the air hangar, isn't it? But I, I, did, I did like that, but... Bond is still looking very stylish, you know. He's still looking the part, Roger Moore is. So we we get to see another funeral procession. I don't know if this is a continuity bit or they just reused it, but in the background, you can see the extras that was in the background from the opening scene are in the same places. So there's a bit where um, the, the band is kind of coming around the corner onto like the main street where you see... And then there's two blokes stood on a corner. I don't know, it's like a pub entrance. And they were there in the, the first bit. And then I noticed they were there in this bit. So I don't know if this basically reused that shot or they they did two bits, you know, when they were filming it, one for the beginning and one for this bit. So I, I noticed that. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on that. I guess you could make the argument that everyone works for Kananga. So, or um, Mr. Big spoiler alert for the next point I'm about to make one of the next points I'm about to make um so you could probably forgive them for reusing the same shot but um yeah I would imagine that's probably just a save on on budget since they seem to be cutting it every film mentioned this briefly earlier uh, so they're in a bar I think it's this it's a chain bar with the same name as the bar they were in in New York earlier in the film and Bond has a bourbon whiskey drink there's no martini to be had um, and this is uh, the scene we briefly referred to earlier with BJ Arnaud singing the theme song on, on stage. And it's the only Bond film to feature the theme on screen as well as you know, part of the opening credits. So that's uh, a nice little Easter egg there. And it's at this around this point that we find out that Mr. Big and Dr. Kananga are indeed the same person. So, Andy, were you surprised? Because obviously we've watched this before and the missus didn't realise this. But obviously, well, you know, when you first introduced to um, Mr. Big, you know, at the beginning, you know, when Bond is, you know, first meets T. E. Johnson and Solitaire, I obviously recalled, yeah, they're the same people. Um, the wife didn't recall that, but I was just, you know, because of the, the, the fake face. I can't remember when I first watched that, if that was a surprise or not, or, you know, a big re revelation. I don't know what you, if you recall that, or if it was such a genuine twist or not. I think it was supposed to be a shock, but I don't, I don't recall being shocked. It certainly wasn't this time round, but I don't remember, I don't, I don't remember the twist from before. So it was like, I knew, I knew without them actually being clear. And also, the, particularly the earlier scenes with, with Mr. Big, the, the fake face was was not that great. It was kind of, you know, it, it, it didn't look realistic enough to be a good enough disguise. And that may be more 
down to you know the special effects of the time as opposed to you know laziness on the behalf of the filmmakers but yeah it, it there wasn't enough to differentiate that this was in fact two different people or was supposed to be two different people i think it was just kind of almost a worst kept secret yeah it wasn't up to the level of the sixth sense with that twist indeed i would go i would go along with that I couldn't think of any other films with twists. I'm, I'm trying to think of films with twists. Star Wars, you know, the father bit, Vader, where he says he's the father of Luke Skywalker. That was a um, revelation. I, get, I mean, I'm, I've not really seen Star Wars because I'm not a fan, but uh, yeah, you'd, you'd be you'd be pretty mad if Mr. Big turned out to be Mr. Bond's father. <laughs> now that's a twist. Just, you know. If anyone wants to make Live and Let Die yeah. 2, that would how I would change the story of that, you know. Mr. Big is actually Mr. Bond Senior. But let's let's get back to the first installment of Live and Let Die before we ruin any potential remakes. Uh Teehee Johnson. Um I'm guessing this where the name Teehee comes from, but he's always smiling. Like in every scene, absolutely loves what he does. He is winning at life. Uh we move on and there's a there's a test that Bond and Solitaire kind of pass you know there's the test i think it's um something to do with a serial number on the watch if i recall correctly um they pass the test bond is carried out by a whisper and that's where he's taken to the the crocodile farm or a crocodile and alligator farm now this this is the scene we touched on earlier and it's it's fantastic uh, for those who haven't seen it just definitely check this out um and he what he basically does is he uses the uh, the alligators and crocodiles are stepping stones to escape from the island back to back to dry land. Um, one thing I noticed, kind of before we get into the the stunt itself, is that he's not exactly forced onto the island. He's just having a casual stroll with the henchmen around him, and then he's on the island. Then all of a sudden, the bridge is retracted with with Tihi and his and his mates on board, and Bond is stuck there in the middle. But it's not like they they shoved him or forced him onto onto that island he just kind of wandered on there which was uh, a little bit odd um and you know bond keeping his guard down there yeah i agree andy um it is very much he's just having a conversation with Tee johnson and then he kind of turns around and realizes that Tee johnson is on the um what's it called like a uh, the bridge that is being drawn in i can't think of what the name is um but yeah he's just there isn't he it's Bond has he's dropped the ball there. A rare mistake by, by someone so professional. Uh, the, so the stunt itself, we, we touched on this earlier, was performed by Ross Kananga, who also owned the, the crocodile farm. The stunt took five attempts, and the stuntman received 193 stitches in his head and leg. That is that is a lot of stitches. Uh, one, one point here that uh, I didn't realise this, this is Jay's research, so, so well done on of finding these points ross's father was eaten by crocodiles that's that's pretty scary stuff so for for the son to do that after that's happened to his father and um, that takes some cojones uh, for sure and a little bit about how they kind of performed the stunt so the they were crocodiles were immobilized the crocodiles were immobilized even uh, by a line being tied down in the water using using weights and the stuntman Ross Kananga was paid $60,000 to perform this, which is around $377,000 in today's money. So that's a nice payday. 
Sadly, he didn't really get to enjoy it much because five years later, at the age of only 32, he died of a cardiac arrest while spearfishing. So um, very, very young to to lose your life, of course, um, and spearfishing uh, for, for this kind of stuntman sounds like an appropriate way to go, you know, doing kind of danger sports or whatever uh, you may call it. But yeah, age 32 uh, took me a bit by surprise that did that he died so young. Just so firstly, um, what I can do is there is actually a, a YouTube video of the stuntman doing this five times and you can see him um, failing and getting bitten and stuff by the crocodiles because even though the crocodiles are immobilized, they can obviously move their head still. And what they were saying was after they did it once or twice, the crocodiles were then expecting someone running over them so they were like always lifting their heads up because they were anticipating it so it just become more dangerous as it um you know carried on so what i could do is share that stunt scene when we publish this episode and then people can check it out if they want to andy three hundred and seventy seven thousand dollars i don't know what that equates to in pounds but would you do that five times running running across the alligators uh, not if I required 193 stitches afterwards, I wouldn't. I'd need a slightly bigger payday, that's for sure. And maybe just the one attempt rather than five, but I guess it would have to be one successful attempt, otherwise someone else would be enjoying all that sweet, sweet moolah. Yeah, apparently um, they did it four times, and then the director, um, Guy Hamilton, were basically ready to call it because it just wasn't working. And then... Um, Ross Kananga said, oh, give me another go. And then he landed it on that last one. So he definitely had, you know, like you said, some some balls to do it. Indeed, yeah, absolutely. I wonder, though, if we if we consider some of the dodgy special effects we've had in the series so far and some of the very suspect camera cuts and scenery and, and all that kind of stuff, is it not just better to get five fake crocodiles and float them in the water? I mean, it might not look quite so good, but it's certainly going to be safer, you would think. Yeah, because obviously in, um, oh, which film is it? You know, the one with the sharks and they had the incident with the, the stuntmen and the live sharks in the pool yeah. as well. So they do, um, I don't think they have a disclaimer, you know, whatever disclaimer to say, you know, animals were injured in the film. I don't think they could, I don't think they have these disclaimers on um, these earlier Bond films. Yeah, so after this bit, we've got um, Andy's favourite scene, um, which is the the boat chase. And as Andy mentioned, you know, the, the, the boat chase includes going over a um, piece of land, interrupting a, a wedding. My comment here, Andy, was this seemed to go on for quite a long time. And my note was, did it go on too long? It was entertaining. It included, um, you know, boats going on over cross patches of land it was all very interesting exciting but i don't know i just thought it went on a bit too long you know some action sequences when you watch films you think oh you know it's gone a bit too long um and this one i think it was it was good because it wasn't just about the speedboat um going around you know the various bits near the crocodile farm you've just got this like transitions between various bits and then it ends up with the, um, the dock, doesn't it? With like the bigger boats 
and then the explosion. So it, it did transition through a number of different locations. But yeah, for me, the, my comment was, oh, that went on a bit too long. And I can't remember if this is the bit then when I went on to, I think it was when I was, you know, picked up my phone and did a bit of Googling about Roger Moore, I think then. It was a long scene, yeah. And I think if it was cut slightly, that would have been fine. Um, so I, I'll, I'll take those but those points on board. But it was, I thought it was quite action packed. So I, I, I didn't did enjoy it. But um, it was certainly much longer than than previous chase scenes that we've seen. I, I'm re- reminded of, I believe it was Doctor No, where there's a boat chase scene, and the camera work is is really really bad, and we see um, the kind of nearly crashing into the rocks, even though he's nowhere near the rock. And it was really quite poorly done. This was really, really well done, I thought. Um, very well shot. Um, like I said, action throughout. Um, but but yeah, if you if you trim a few seconds here and there, you probably don't lose too much. So uh, that's, a, that's a good point. And Andy, you know, you mentioned um, the wedding as well. So, you know, you commented that, the, you know, the cake gets destroyed and the big day is ruined. Um, you also mentioned about... Um, there's just no reaction apart from the bride. So I don't know if the, the, the groom is thinking, oh, you know, he's been saved. Have the vows been done or not? You know, has he had a, a close escape? I think this was just so obvious that nobody reacted except for the bride. Um, it was just like, well, it, it looked like they knew it was going to happen and they were just watching it unfold. So it was going to a little bit take you out of the moment. But it's an interesting point you made in terms of, as, as the groom had a lucky escape, maybe what would have made this, uh, you know, take it to the next comedy level is if the uh, the priest would have said, if there's there's anyone here who finds reason why they shouldn't be married, please speak now. And at that point, the boat comes in. I'm just, you know, throwing that out there. If you need my uh, directing and producing skills in Hollywood, uh, I'm an all rounder. But that's how I would have done it differently um, from a from a comedy timing perspective. But uh, also, yeah, it, was, it was a nice little touch. Sorry, go ahead. Also, Andy, adding on to that point, which is a great point. It could have been Bond going over, sweeping up the bride because it's going to be another Bond gal and then carrying on. And then that's the introduction. So the groom gets a lucky escape, but then Bond gets the bride. Yeah, he could have thrown in a famous one-liner in there as well. Yes. Um, like, i just thinking on the spot, uh, uh, something like, do you want to sail away with me? Even though, you know, we'll, we'll work on that. Yes. Give me time, Hollywood. I'll I'll be back in touch. <laughs> um, but let's let's continue with uh, the current movie rather than starting my ill-fated movie career off on a bad foot. Um, we are then introduced to Sheriff J. W. Pepper. I, I believe I mistakenly referred to him as Sergeant earlier. He's a sheriff who's in this and the next Bond film, so he's a, a recurring character. I think the intention was to use him a bit of comic relief, and certainly, you know, he's, he's kind of a typical hillbilly type. Um, reminded me a little bit of smoking the bandit has to be said I don't know which one came first but it's kind of that's the thing that came to mind but also very bigoted very racist it's a bit uh, it's it's not going to wash in today's times I think um, you know we talked earlier about how introducing black actors and a black bond girl seemed to be a step forward in terms of you know racial equality and um, you know the kind of yeah you know the equality issues that a lot of black actors would have faced at the time this seems like it almost undoes undoes all that hard work 
by being so stereotypical and bigoted. So it's um it's a bit close to the knuckle. It's it's an okay character. It's you know, like I said, a bit of comic relief, but it's a little bit uncomfortable when you're rewatching it back all these years later. Yeah, I agree. And Andy, another thing actually that I just remembered as part of the research, you know, um as part of the the chase with the boats, there's a bit where the the boat lands on the sheriff's car. That wasn't scripted. That was an accident. Oh, okay. But the sheriff, um, you know, J.W. Pepper, he kept in character. Um, so they were able to actually use that. It's shot in the um, actual film. That's interesting. I, I would have assumed that was just scripted. That was, that was quite a, a good moment of the scene. Yeah. yeah. Nice little Easter egg. Um, Bond casually arrives at the dock. Um, the CIA and the police are waiting for him and the sheriff turns up and he can't believe it when he finds out that Bond is a secret agent. I think he was really looking forward to to nailing this guy and then all of a sudden it's a secret agent and he's on he's on his side. So it's a bit of disappointment for the sheriff there, but a nice a nice way to round out uh, what was a very good scene. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was it was funny that end bit. So we're back in San Monique. So we see Solitaire is tied up now. So we've got the voodoo ceremony and she's tied up. Um, the Baron um, makes a cool entrance, doesn't he, Andy, in terms of the grave? I thought that was um, was good. So there's a fight between Bond and Samidi. Um, it's very short, isn't it, um, there? It's not one of those, um, you know, in some films where Bond is fighting one of the, the main primary henchmen or, um, you know, I know there's obviously Teehee Johnson as well, but this one was over, you know, short and sweet. Yeah, very, very short, quite effective, but uh, it took me by surprise just how short that was. We've got Kananga here, and he shoots one of the, the gas-slash-air pellets into the sofa that Whisper was sitting on, and it inflates, which um, I guess is a precursor of what's to come in a few moments' time, but uh, it was a little bit strange, I thought, because isn't there still a hole in the sofa where the pellet went through? Um but maybe maybe that's just thinking about um, a little bit too too long. And then there's another scene that comes up, which um, again was one of the ones that I remember, and I think it's one of those kind of all-time memorable scenes where Bond and Solitaire are about to be fed to the sharks. Um, they're, they're tied to to some sort of um, hanging platform, and Bond gets his arm sliced so the blood drips into the water. Um, but Bond is very unlucky with animals because this is sharks and crocodiles in the same film that he's about to be fed to. Uh, but somehow escapes. Yeah, there's can't be many films, can there, where you know the the main actor, the main character, is nearly eaten by a shark and a crocodile. He's obviously, like we mentioned earlier on, Bond has a run in with um, a number of sharks, but this is in both both of them in one film. Two alpha predators in the one film Bond encounters. Indeed. Maybe we'll be on unofficial animal watch for, for future films to see if this occurs again. Um, and then final point from me and about San Monique is uh, Bond gets one of the gas air pellets and he puts some puts in Kananga's mouth and Kananga explodes. No blood splatter. You'd think, you know, a human body exploding the way it did, there'd be blood everywhere. And I, I took this note because it reminded me of Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory 
where she's just continually inflates and has to be rolled away to the deflating room or whatever it's called. But the uh, the visual of Kananga uh, inflating before exploding just took me back to that film. Yeah, and yeah, obviously Kananga doesn't have any umpalumpas working for him. Um, where everyone else, it seems to be working for him. There's no umpalumpas around. Willy Wonka isn't a film I like, Andy. Um, Chocolate Factory. I've read the book, um, but it's not a film I like. Moving on. So yeah, Andy, I don't know what your thought of of this was. Whisper, does he survive? Because he's locked in the metal capsule that we see. Um, is you know, it's implied unless I missed it, that he's got a, a weakened lungs. That's why he whispers. And the capsule is airtight. So I don't know how long he was surviving um, the, the capsule. Do you think he survives? Or do you think now that Kananga's dead and the CIA arrives, that he's just taken off and, you know, there's some jail time? What's your view on that? That that was my thought when that happened. That is interesting. I not, can't say I'd put much thought into it, but I... I'm going to assume that he was arrested, but probably in a very weakened state because, um, like you said, he wouldn't survive in there for very long. But then I guess, you know, who's there to to free him? Maybe he's still there to this day. We'll never know. It's open to interpretation then, audience interpretation. I like that sometimes when they do that in movies. Or they just forgot about him and didn't do an ending for him. Anyway, so we're on the ending now, the end scene. So we're on the train. I had to um, Google this bit after the film, so I didn't do it straight away. So Bond makes a quip about the unlucky at cards when he loses to Solitaire. Um, so, yeah, I Googled this. So this is the reverse of being lucky at cards, unlucky at love. So it's just the reverse. Also, Andy, I didn't write this down, but a, a fault. Is this one of the few times that we see Bond lose at cards? I think it's got to be, hasn't it? Because we usually see him obviously winning, but he, he loses to Solitaire um, playing one Ginny. So now I'm thinking about it, I can think of one other place where he loses or is seemingly losing for a while, and that's in Casino Royale, where he... He needs to be uh, forwarded some more money to continue the game. Spoiler alert for episode 21 of the series. Uh, that's the only one that comes to mind off the top of my head. But that's an interesting point. So this potentially is the the first time up until that film. Maybe we can track it in future to see. But yeah, when that happened, yeah, it's just it's just one of those things you just, you know, um, you just always kind of relate Bond to, to winning in cards um so yeah it's just a little note not just cards as well think of scenes where he's played golf or shooting or whatever he always seems to be on the winning side we get Teehee johnson back on the train uh, a bit of a scrap between the two of them um and i believe this will be the first fight on a train since from russia with love possibly not quite as memorable as as that fight scene but um still quite Quite an effective use of the fight scene. I, I did quite like the bit where uh, I think it's Teehee shuts Solitaire into the fold-up bed and she's very unhappy with Bond afterwards because I'm not sure she realises who it was that did it. And then the film ends with the, the shot of the outside of the train and Baron Samadhi is sat on the front uh, of the train as it chugs along, which I thought was a very cool ending. I did wonder whether this was 
kind of a way of opening up as a, a reintroduction, but also it confirms that he didn't die in the earlier fight scene. But I thought that was a, a nice way to to end the film before we go into the to the closing credits. Okay, so that's that's the end of the film. Let's uh, move on to a few quotes and one-liners that we saw. I'll take this first one, which was an exchange between the uh, the cabbie and Bond in New York. Uh, so the cabbie starts with, uh, you know where you're going? Uptown, I believe. Uptown? You're headed into Harlem, man. Well, you just keep the art, you just keep on the tail of that jukebox and there's an extra 20 in it for you. Hey, man, for 20 bucks, I'll take you to a Ku Klux Klan cookout. Lovely. Brilliant. It was funny, that scene. So I don't have the acting chops like Andy. So this is the the bit where Andy mentioned, you know, about the, the good ending of the boat chase. So this is um, J.W. Pepper, Sheriff. So he goes, there's that son of a bitch. I got him. What are you? Some kind of doomsday machine? Well, we've got a cage strong enough to hold an animal like you here. Then Felix Leiter goes, Captain, would you enlighten the sheriff, please? Trooper. Yes, sir. J.W., let me have a word with you. J.W., now this fella's from London, England. He's an Englishman working in cooperation with our boys. Sort of secret agent. Then J.W. goes, secret agent? On whose side? That was nice. I was I was hoping you'd go into a full-on JW accent there. I can't do accents at all. <laughs> what are you, some kind of doomsday machine, boy? That's my, that's my terrible attempts. We'll edit that out. No one needs to hear that. Uh, the scene at the start of the film, so uh, the MI6 agent Hamilton gets killed. He's just watching the funeral procession, and he turns and says, whose funeral is it? And the henchman just says, yours, and then stabs him. That's a nice little line there, I thought. Yeah, definitely. And in this one, I thought it was a good quote, but the whole film has like racial undertones, a bit of racism um, in it. So this is between Bond and Strutter, who works for Felix. So Strutter, kind of obvious you weren't coming out front, not even with that clever disguise you were wearing. And then Bond goes, hmm? And then Strutter goes, white face in Harlem? Good thinking, Bond. You're right in terms of that kind of racial undertone, but a little bit, a little bit of a funny there. Uh, let's move on. Let's pick up on a couple of things around the book versus the movie and where there are some differences. So the book is actually the second James Bond novel in the series, whereas obviously this is film number eight in the franchise. Uh, and in the book, uh, Mr. Big's operation involves gold coins for the 1600s. In the film, the operation is based on heroin. So very different takes on uh, Mr. Big's operation there. Yeah, and I mentioned this next point, obviously. So in the book, Quarrel Senior was introduced. Um, however, as you know, in episode one, Quarrel is introduced in the first movie of Dr. No, and I think that's why they did that um, little linkage, Andy, I mentioned earlier, where it's not explicitly stated in the film, but Quarrel Junior is kind of related to Quarrel Senior. And in the novel, Felix Leiter has a, a bigger part, and he's actually fed to a shark and loses half a leg and arm in this novel. But obviously in the films, that happens later on. Spoiler alert. Very interesting. Jay, do you want to hear a joke? I always want to hear a joke, Andy. Is it about James Bond? It is, of course, about James Bond. Um, I wrote zero jokes about James Bond, so I'm going to steal this one from someone else. If you don't like it, you know who not to blame. So a receptionist, I don't know whether, let's say they're in a hotel. A receptionist asked 007 his name. He replies, Bond, James Bond. And the receptionist replies, 
I didn't ask for your middle name, Bon Bond. I like I, I, I say some of these to um, my wife as well. Um, and some of them, she just rolls her eyes. But I think that was um, a nice little joke, Andy. So well done. Thank you. I, I think that would be an eye roller, but in a good way. <laughs> I, I like that, the silliness of it. We've obviously only been doing a joke for a few weeks, but if there's any listeners that have a James Bond joke, feel free to tweet us and we can always include it on a future episode if it makes the cut of Andy's high threshold of quality jokes. So carrying on now, Andy, this is, you know, this is where the pressure is on you now. So this is the quiz. So this is the one where I'm going to throw a couple of full statements Andy's way and then there's going to be two statements that are, that are correct Andy kind of a, a spoiler alert I've dropped my granddad from these statements now I've retired him now not like how James Bond retires people I've just retired him from um, this section that is interesting because in this film we obviously we don't get a Blofeld or Spectre and now we're not getting your granddad and I don't think I've ever seen your granddad and Blofeld in the same place at the same time. And I've mentioned how your granddad is a notorious liar and obvious villain. And I'm just putting two and two together here um, and coming up with, with seven, 007, maybe. Well, Andy, I didn't want to mention it because obviously there's copyright issues. So I, we can no longer mention my granddad while the, you know, the copyright issues go through court. So he will be retired for a, a number of episodes. He might come back when Blofeld returns. Who knows? We'll refer to him as Nameless Villain. <laughs> nameless Villain, yes. He's not in a wheelchair or boarding, just so you know. Anyway, so... Two state. Uh, I'm going to try to get this right because the last few episodes, when I've said correct, incorrect, it's just gone pear shaped. So, Andy, as usual, there's four statements. Two are correct and two are incorrect. So, listeners, feel free to you know play along as well. So, Andy, as usual, I will read all four statements out, and then you can um, either ask me to repeat them or just you know go into it. So, the first statement. Though it was his standard issue pistol, Bond does not fire his PPK in this movie. The next one. Tina Turner nearly got the part of Solitaire, but withdrew due to touring commitments. Roger Moore is the only Bond to use a hang glider. And the last statement. This was nearly Steven Spielberg's first movie, having only directed TV episodes or shorts. However, Spielberg was approached by Universal Pictures to direct Jaws after Dick Richards pulled out. So we could have had a very different Bond movie if Spielberg took this, if my statement is correct or incorrect. Indeed. So very, very different shark scenes as well. <laughs> yes. Maybe you got the idea of uh, Jaws from the, the the script from this film and for, you know what, there's not enough sharks. I'm going to do a film about one shark and just have a lot more of it instead of the end. So I, how do you want to do this? So, I mean, I'm, I'm now thinking about Jaws, but instead of the Jaws theme, the James Bond theme in the background, but so, <laughs> I'm off on a tangent. 
Um, these are very, very tricky, it has to be said. Um, there isn't one that obviously stands out as being true or false. I think they're all quite plausible. So um, I'm expecting potentially a low score here. I'm going to go with the first statement, not firing the PPK as a true statement, because I don't recall much shooting at all from Bond, it has to be said. I know it obviously kills a number of people in various ways. I remember, you know, the ladder and the kick and the car chases, and but I don't remember much in the way of just pure gunfire from the PPK. So I'm going to say that that's a true statement that he doesn't actually fire it in this in this film. Okay. Before I take your um, your answer, if it's incorrect or correct, Bond kills one person with a gun, and it's Samadhi. Baron Samadhi, where I did some research, Andy. So he does only kill one person with a gun, but is it the PPK? Just to kind of throw, not so much a spanner, but just to kind of make you doubt where we should go with your first answer or not. I'm going to throw another spanner back at you then and say, does that count as a kill since we see him in the final scene of the film on the front of the train? Um. It does count for a kill because it's in the numbers. <laughs> I'm going to yes. make you redo all your stats. <laughs> but yes, so um, I leave it he's up a, to he's you. He's a voodoo man. He comes back from the death. Okay. He has more than nine lives. So I'm, I'm going to stick. With, I'm going to stick with that statement, though. I want to say he he doesn't use his PPK. So I don't know why he's got it. Um, okay, do you want to know? The answer to that one, or I'm, do you I'm, want to carry on? I'm going to continue, well, because I feel like I'm on a roll here. I'm on fire. So that one's definitely true. I think the other one that's definitely true is the third statement about Roger Moore being the only Bond that used a hand glider. I I just don't recall... Well, I don't recall anyone using a hand glider. I, I didn't remember uh, Roger Moore using it in this film until I watched it back, so... I don't recall any hand gliding at all, so I'm going to say that statement is true. And Tina Turner as Solitaire, I think, is false, and I think that's because of the earlier statement around uh, United Artists not sanctioning a black actress for the role. And Spielberg, I think, is also false. I think they always had Hamilton in mind for returning to this, would be my guess. So, so... The pistol not fired and more being the only hand glider are my guesses at true statements. Okay. So before I answer or confirm your position, there is one more movie where Bond hand glides, just so you know. But is that a Roger Moore film or not? I know the answer. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> Find out in a future episode. <laughs> so, okay. So, are you happy with those? Do you want to lock them in? I'm, you know, I'm happy. I feel like with these little nuggets of information, you're trying to lead me down the garden path. So, I'm going. I'm going to stick to my guns, my my Walter PPKs. Nice. So, Andy, you are a hundred percent correct this week. You are right. So. Bond does not fire his PPK in this movie, and Roger Moore is the only Bond as of 
this recording that um, uses a hang glider. So Moore also uses a hang glider in Moonraker. The Tina Turner nearly got the part of Solitaire. So I made a variation for that because Diana Ross was originally wanted um, by the screenwriter, but obviously the issues that you just mentioned is one of the reasons why they, they, they pulled that. And Spielberg was not involved with this. He obviously released Jaws. I think it was a couple of years after this um, this film was released. But yeah, yeah up until um, this movie, um, he had only done TV episodes or shorts. I think it was, um, or I think he might have done one movie actually in 71. But yeah, so I thought just yeah, that took me 45 minutes to make those four questions, Andy. So I'm glad you had a bit of difficulty, but you still got 100% right. So I'm that, a bit disappointed. That was, that was good. Yeah, I mean, basically, don't work hard because it's all for nothing is the lesson you should all take <laughs> from this. Um, but I feel like that's just desserts after the way you've screwed me over these last few weeks and you know tried to knock my confidence and ruin my potential Hollywood career. So now things are back on track. It's onwards and upwards for me. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to be often, Andy, that you, you, you're mentioning the same breath as Spielberg. So, you know, that is um, something you can, you know, appreciate. Put it on your CV, I think, your whatever actors have um, as a CV. So, Andy, that's that's the, the quiz. I think um, I'm going to start tallying all the quizzes up in terms of, how, you know, what your score is, um, because I think there's only two or three weeks where you haven't got it right. So I'm going to have to make these a bit harder, I think. We're moving on to the rankings now. So, you know, our regular listeners will know we are tracking um, a lot of this stuff that we mentioned earlier on each week. So, Andy, you mentioned earlier, so I'm going to pick up one times. Um, so, Andy, you mentioned Live and Let Die, two hours, one minute. So that is actually the third longest Bond film we've had so far. So it's short by 21 minutes of um, compared to On a Majesty's Secret Service. And Fundable was two hours, 10 minutes kill count we've got live and let die eight kills as i mentioned earlier so that comes in straight in at number five so one below goldfinger and one above the previous film diamonds are forever so roger moore after one film he has eight kills and then last one from me before andy takes over you know you mentioned this already he doesn't drink a martini thank you jay so moving on to the introduction of Bond, James Bond. Uh, we do get this in in the film, and it's actually the longest it's taken so far. So twenty three minutes and ten seconds. Uh, so we've we've heard this introduction in five of the eight films so far. So even you know the fact that it's not appeared in three is still a surprise to me. But of the five we've heard it, it's by far the longest time taken to hear it. And then from a hat perspective, there's no throwing of the hat and there's no wearing of the hat. And Felix Leiter does appear. This is his fifth appearance in the Bond franchise. And it's also the fifth different actor to play the part. So David Hedison plays this. Um, and plays the part of Felix in this movie. Yeah, so we move on to Bond girls now. So, Live and Let Die. We've had Solitaire, Miss Caruso, and Rosie Carver. So, Andy, I'm going to let you go first for this one. Do you tell me where... You put these three Bond girls, and then I'll go through my ones. Okay, so this is it's a bit of a mixed bag, has to be said. Uh, so we're now, in total, up to 31 
Bond girls across the eight films. I've got Solitaire as a very solid number four. Um, I thought it was a very well-played part. Very, very strong Bond girl in some ways. Um, and also there was there was a bit of jeopardy in terms of whose who side is she really on. Um, very beautiful Jane Seymour uh, as well, which certainly helps matters. Um, so I've got a slight, just above Tiffany Case and just below uh, Tracy, or Teresa DiVincenzo. So number four for Solitaire. Now, going further down, I've got Rosie Carver in as my second of three from this film, but um, kind of lower mid-table, so I've got her in 19th place out of 31. The word that comes to mind, as we discussed earlier, is a bit ditzy, but um, you know, a very good part that she played. Um, didn't see much of her in terms of screen time, um, but I thought, you know, solid but unspectacular effort from from Rosie. And then I've got Miss Caruso slightly further down in, in 23rd place out of 31. Um, and again, screen time is really the main reason for this for me. Is I believe she only appears in the one scene. Doesn't say much, if anything. Um, spends most of that scene hidden away in the cupboard. Yeah, just a kind of almost a cameo in some regards. So no real effort in terms of making her part of the film. Or you know, you could almost cut her scenes and everything would be fine. So down in twenty third place for Miss Caruso. How does that compare with your rankings, Jay? Yeah, I mean, Solitaire, um, I slipped her in at number six. So just below Tiffany Case, because I really like Tiffany Case, um, and just one above Domino. So Jane Seymour, obviously very um, attractive, beautiful actress. And her character, yeah, like you said, you didn't quite know. There was a bit where you think she's kind of switched sides again. Um, so I do, I do think she's a strong entry in terms of a Bond girl. Whereas... Miss Caruso and Rosie Carver, they, they were low down. Um, I think, like you said, Miss Caruso was in the, the one scene at the beginning. If you, you know, if you went and got some popcorn or something in a cinema, you would have missed her scene and not realised um, she was in it. Um, Rosie Carver, she was just so ditzy that she actually ranked lower than the female Andy Flintoff from Under Majesty's Secret Service. So that's how much she grated on me in this film. So yeah, the um, Ruby Bartlett is just above Rosie Carver. So I've got Rosie Carver at 28 and Miss Caruso at 24. I don't For me, some of the films have really strong Bond girls and then some of them are just really weak. Like Diamonds of Forever, we've obviously got a strong Tiffany Case and then, you know, plenty Bambi from Per Marie. On mine, we're all scored lower down. I know you put plenty of tall higher up, but it, they're just sometimes there's some of the films you have one stronger Bond girl and then the like two or three supporting ones, and that is just a theme that's continued in this film. Yeah, so it's a good observation. It's almost like there needs to be multiple films. Uh, sorry, there needs to be multiple girls to um, enhance that um, image of Bond being a womanizer, but ultimately there's only one that really matters throughout the film and I think that's that's the case here as well uh, moving on to the theme song so Live and Let Die by Paul McCartney and Wings I've got this straight in at the top this is for me the best Bond song so far um, it's a, a little bit of a change of pace from previous Bond songs it's more of a more of a rock upbeat song but I I love this song 
I think it's a some absolute classic, um, straight in top of the pops for me. How about yourself? I've put it in at number three. We obviously have got our own little Spotify um, playlist that Andy's pulled together for James Bond. I listen to that a lot, Andy, especially when I'm doing, you know, pulling together the notes, doing the research. And then when I do this, this part of the, the podcast, I play, you know, the song again. And I think, oh, where does it drop in? But there's a bit, I, I do like the song, and it's number three for a reason. But there's a bit where I just don't like where it's, um, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it, it starts off good, but then it kind of goes off and I thought, oh, I'm not that bothered. And I, like I said, I know it's not a Beatles song, but it's not something that really f- is. I like Bond songs that are more um, ballads. So, you know, like the, the Shirley Bassey um, songs, although there is a couple of songs later on that we, I do really like, which I will score higher. Um, but yeah, that's where, you know, top three is, you know, respectable position. Um, I did like the change of pace. It was like, you know, with Roger Moore coming in, they did something different, you know, a true rock and roll song. So I do like it. I was a bit surprised when I saw yours, if I'm honest, because we've been quite consistent, haven't we, in in terms of, you know, we both had, um, well, actually, Diamonds of Forever went in at number one, but we both had Goldfinger beforehand as our number one. So our one and two have always been the same, but now we've got... Um, you know, like you mentioned, that synergy in in terms of earlier on, our rankings have changed. Um, so as our theme songs. So leading on now in terms of opening credits, um, I go first, Andy, on this one. Um, I put it down as number four. So, you know, this is, you know, good music, upbeat, fast-paced, the, the colourful, um, like with all the, a lot of the other films, it's influenced by um, the the subject matter in terms of the main film. So we've got voodoo ceremonies in there, and we've got your usual female silhouettes. But for me, they're all getting a bit samey, so it's hard to distinguish um, between them now. So I pull it in at number four just because it's not doing anything different. So Goldfinger still my number one because the gold ladies, the projection on the um, the models of the previous films, all that was new. So it's kind of like setting, um, I don't know, breaking new territory. And same with A Majesty's Secret Service. I like the bits where it was snapshotting um, previous bits from the other bits. You had Honey Rider, Doctor No. So I liked all those kind of um, different intros, whereas live and let die even though the music's different everything else still still feels the same that is an interesting point yeah and uh, it's it is difficult to differentiate at times because there is there's a definite theme in terms of how the opening credits are laid out now for me i've put this in at number one again and i think the reason i've done that is how it not only interacts with the music but how it sets the scene for the rest of the film and I think previously I'd had Thunderball in at number one. And I think if we think about the the swimming and the scuba diving and the harpoon guns and the water of the intro, and a lot of the film was set in the water. And similarly for Goldfinger, we've got lots of gold influence and the gold models, and we've got obviously a film about gold. So it it fits, I think it fits quite nicely. Whereas I think some of the others are more sort of generic 
credits in that style. This, for me, most closely matched the film, and I think that's why I've ranked it slightly above everything else in at number one. Fair comment, Andy. And it's nice that we're getting... Um, I know our villains are different, but it's nice we're kind of seeing um, some differences now in our rankings, um, which we're, you know, we're going to see, aren't we? When, you know, when we get to the end of episode 25... Um, I was dreading that we had the similar order. <laughs> it's nice to get some different views, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk villains next. Um, so we've got uh, we've got Baron Samadhi, we've got Doctor Kananga, Mister Big, and we've got Tiki Johnson as the three three slash four. Although we know, obviously, we find out four becomes three because Doctor Kananga and Mister Big are one and the same. Um, which takes us the total villains up to 20 for the series so far. Um, so in terms of where they slot for me, all very similar placings. They're all kind of mid-table-ish. So I've got, um, I've got reverse order. Teehee Johnson I thought was the weaker of the three, uh, but I've still got him at 14, so just slightly below Rosa Klebb. A, a good... A good villain, but again, didn't really do much other than smile and crush things. Um, so, you know, not not a great deal of substance, I thought. Um, we're gonna, I think we're gonna differ. I've just eyeballed your rankings, and we've we've definitely got a difference here. So I've I've got Doctor Kananga, Mister Big, in at number eleven. Next, um, again, quite a solid villain, but not not as imposing. I would say more somewhat in the background and um, so i've kind of put him on a par with dr no really just slightly below and then my favorite of the three is is baron samadhi which i've got in at number seven so between the blowfelds of diamonds are forever in six and on a majesty's secret service in eight um i would say that the difference with with this for me is there's there's some element of physical imposing this in 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 the way that telly savalas played blofeld but it's more that kind of psychological that voodoo aspect and it's almost dare i say a cool factor it's quite a cool villain and i think that for me just edges him up a few places um i see your rankings are quite different so i'll let you explain your thoughts next yeah it's interesting because i was when you were just saying about you know baron samadhi um i was thinking then and then you mentioned that. So I always think, so I put in Baron. So out of the three um, villains, henchmen, um, Andy's mentioned, Baron is actually the lowest um, I put him in my ranking. So in number 14 compared to um, Andy's seven. And when you were saying justifying your position, I um, did it like the other way. So where you say like imposing, I was just thinking in the film, he, he, he's obviously spooky, um, and there's a bit where he, you know, where Solit Solitaire passes the test and then the Baron kind of is like hovering over her, isn't he? So it's kind of like um, intimidating, um, but more of a spooky way. And obviously you've got the voodoo bits and ceremonies, but physically um, I don't think he's imposing um, at all um, in terms of like, you know, if he was in a fight, um, against Bond. So that's why I put him lower than Teehee Johnson, who, who goes in at number 13. So only one place higher. But with my rankings, I thought generally that the three villains slash henchmen were weak compared to previous films. So Mr. Uh, Dr. Karanga, Kananga 
and Mr. Big, I'll put him in at number 11. So my ones have gone 11, 13 and 14. So all mid to slightly lower half. And Andy, I know I can't, can't remember if I said this um, in a previous episode. Now we've moved away from Spectra. So I know we had obviously had um, Goldfinger um, and Objob who didn't work for Spectra. Now we've moved away from Spectra. I, I don't know how these are going to play out because I find kind of independent villains less intimidating compared to the ones that kind of fall under the Spectra banner. Um, so it'd be interesting to see, you know, once we carry on watching, you know, these next few, because, you know, as you said, and we said in the previous one, we don't see Spectra for a while, where these kind of independent villains drop into our rankings. The exception so far is obviously Goldfinger, um, who we've both got us in at number one, is like my, is my view. So next one, um, Andy, is movies. So, you know, we both said what our score is at the beginning. So I said six out of ten. So, you know, we have got these on our website as well in terms of tracking these. So six out of 10 is on par in my rankings with You Only Live Twice. And I think Live and Let Die was slightly better than You Only Live Twice. So they both got six out of 10, but I think it was slightly better. It was refreshing seeing Roger Moore coming in, playing the role different as we've described earlier in the podcast. Um, it is a better film than Diamonds Are Forever, and I think it's slightly better than You Only Live Twice. But for me, um, the next one up is Doctor No, which is seven out of ten in fifth place. So I don't think it's as good as um, Doctor No. So I put Live and Let Die in at number six with six out of ten. How about you, Andy? So I've got it as eight out of ten, which puts it as second best so far. Only Goldfinger beats this for me, and I think when I when I look back and think of Bond generally and how i rank the roger moore films or how i think of the roger moore films i think re-watching this i was pleasantly surprised with just how much i enjoyed it and i enjoyed it far more than i expected to um, and it was just really captivating and engrossing um more so than the recent connery ones so um yeah only goldfinger which still stands head and shoulders for me above but this is my first eight out of ten ranking it got pretty close so yes, yeah, second best so far. Very very strong opening for Roger Moore. I thought. Yeah, it's 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 nice. Like we kind of just said, we're seeing a bit of diff, um, a difference now. Um, I I'm trying to think now of the villains, Andy, because obviously you know you mentioned that the book was focusing on um, 16th century, 1600 um, gold, whereas this is purely about drug money, isn't it? Whereas you know, the, the Spectra ones was um, like, you know, um, either threat of nuclear war or some kind of domination. Goldfinger was obviously um, gold bullions, wasn't it? Whereas this one seems to be more um, seedy, sleazy kind of focus, you know, in terms of um, heroin, money, kind of drug trafficking is the, the plot around this one. Yeah, in some ways, that makes it a little bit more straightforward. In some ways, it it can kind of de-emphasize the importance. So there's not that world domination element. I guess, I guess the only um, the only thing that kind of saves it from just being a straight up all about money is the fact that he wants to give away a whole bunch of heroin to get people hooked. But ultimately, that's a long term business plan. 
get people hooked so they then have to buy it. It's a bit of a bit of an elaborate tribe before you buy scheme by uh, by big. Uh, but you're right. It it seems less. It's almost like you don't need a spy for this. It's, you just need the police. Yeah, and not that Bond is is worthless and useless in this film because it isn't by any means. But it isn't it isn't your typical spy film. Yeah, and Bond only gets involved because um, MI6 have three agents murdered, don't they? Assassinated. Um, so, or well, yeah, the UK rep and the UN as well. So Bond might have not get involved if, if none of that um, transpired. Yeah, that is a good point. So, but it's it's certainly taking it off. In a very different direction. Yeah, so we move on to Bond actors, and it's hard to judge, isn't it, Andy? With just one um, Roger Moore film, but George Lazenby only had one. So, um, in terms of the three actors that we've played and um, that have played um, James Bond so far, Roger Moore, I've slotted in at number two. He he plays him differently to Sean Connery, um, and differently to how George Lazenby played him as well. I agree with you. In terms of the overall uh, Bond rankings, Connery then more than Lazenby so far will give more more of a chance over the next six films to see if he can change that position. What I would say as a bit of a side note is arguably this is the strongest debut of Bond. I think obviously Lazenby only had the one film to judge him against and I think Roger Moore was much stronger in the role than Lazenby was. I think... If we if we were to judge just this film on Her Majesty's Secret Service and Doctor No, if we take away all the other Conneries, it'd be interesting to see who we think had the strongest debut. And I would argue that maybe Roger Moore slightly edges it in that regard. But Connery comes more into his own, particularly in From Russia With Love and Goldfinger. And that's what puts him in the number one slot when he really kind of finds his groove. It's an interesting point, but then if you look at our movie rankings on a Majesty's Secret Service, um, I've given um, that eight out of eight out of ten, um, whereas Live and Let Die is six out of ten. So for me, and you know, Doctor No is Sean Connery's first, which is seven out of ten. So for me, it's the weakest first entry, but obviously I've ranked Roger Moore as a better Bond. Um, as Jules Lazenby, just because um, we both said we liked Jules Lazenby, and we, you know, we both said it's a shame he didn't do more films. It was good, but I thought it was refreshing, you know, going a different direction in terms of like the smoothness and the, um, you know, the tender lover kind of thing. Um, whereas obviously Connery is different, but it, yeah, we we kind of spoke about it, didn't we, before we went live about you know, where, where Live and Let Die dropped in because, um, you know, me and the missus both enjoyed it. But like I said earlier, when you pull it side by side, each of them, it would just, just lower than Dr. No, and it's slightly better with only twice. But then thinking, is that just because of the, you know, the villains? I didn't rate them as highly. If there were better villains, could that film um, scored higher? It's just, you know, some what is really. You can only obviously work with what you've given. And I just remember that from memory in terms of when I watched these originally and rewatched them through the years before, you know, like I said before, I've not rewatched a Bond film for about 10, 15 years. I just remember the, the more films not being as great. 
yeah i'd agree with i'd agree with that assessment and i think that's what what took me by surprise this time is that i wasn't expecting it to be so good but let's see if that continues over the next yeah few and i can't remember living let die is one of his better ones or weaker ones so you know you've obviously scored it higher but are they all going to be um, that high in terms of re-watching them? Whereas I've scored it lower. Is, is that because I think other Roger Moore films are, are better? It's just obviously we've gone in such a different end, haven't we? So it'd be interesting to see when we go through the Mon ones, if you're and the more bonds, whether you're going to be, you know, where I've consistently scored, be more generous with the Connery ones. Is it going to be like vice versa now through the more ones? Um, be interesting to see. We shall find out over the coming weeks. So I think that brings us to a close for this week's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, and give you a little preview of what we've got in store next week. So in the past, we've had a gold finger. And in the future, we're going to have a golden eye. This film could be called Gold Penis because he is the man with the golden gun. <laughs> I like it, Andy. Um, um, on that note... Yeah, I've lowered the tone sufficiently enough. Let's leave it there. <laughs> well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to the rating room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song The System, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Right here on The Rating Room. Christopher, what insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? <laughs> People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but... There are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show? Oh, we'll do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see.